Hello and welcome to, or welcome back uh, to my podcast series, How Enslavement Was Justified in America During 1715 Until Around 1815. Um, So welcome back. Um, If you are new here, definitely refer back to my other few videos, or not videos, oh my gosh, so silly, my other few podcasts. Um, So today, this is our third podcast now very exciting. Um, So today we're going to be discussing um, another argument that was used uh, for the, you know, pro-slavery defense. So uh, today's is going to be the idea that enslavement is natural. Alright, so for this episode, we're going to be discussing this pro-slavery defense, right? So in this episode, I'm mostly going to be talking about Aristotle and this guy named Pierre Huber, I think it's Huber, um, he's from Geneva, so he was not from the U.S., but his work did make it to the United States um, in the 1800s, so I'm going to be discussing him as well. Hopefully I'm pronouncing his, his name right, I believe it is Pierre Huber. Um, so, the argument that slavery is natural and naturally occurring, so this idea as well, if it's naturally occurring, it makes it okay. I know. Interesting. Um, This concept wasn't one that was pulled out of thin air, however. It was rooted in, quote-unquote, science. Um, So this is something that we might choose to describe today as pseudoscience. Um, However, it, I mean, it was a scientific study, but of course we know, like, the origin and the reason why the study was done is definitely rooted in an idea of pseudoscience. Um, So anyway, I digress, we move on. Um, So for this specific justification, I'm actually using two sources. So I'm using the book that Huber wrote, as well as a secondary source that discusses his book titled The Enslaved Ants and and the Peculiar Institution by Timothy K. Manella. So in 1810, a man named Pierre Huber from Geneva He was a naturalist. He published a book on the behaviors of ants called The Natural History of Ants. Um, So first, I guess I'm going to describe the contents of this book. The book describes two different ant species, one being a red ant known as the Amazon ant, which would go on, you know, like little journeys, if you will, searching for either larvae or pupae of one of two kinds of ants so there were like two kinds that would be the victims of this it was like this ant with an ashen like charcoal kind of black color and the other was known as mining ant and i'm pretty sure he describes it as just being a completely like pitch black colored ant so both of these ants were somewhat black in color i'm sure you can see unfortunately where this is going um so they were both kind of like black in color and these would be the ants that would be you know targeted um it like with the other with the red ants so the red ants would go in search of these black ants pupae and larvae so they're babies that were not quite born yet so when these pupae or larvae were found the red ants would run them back to the colony and wait for them to hatch so once they did the black ants would be born and then would serve 
in the colony as if it were their own. So, however, you know, Hubert or Huber did notice that these black ants would do like a lot of the work, like all of the work for the colony. Um, you know, whether that be stuff like, uh, you know, making trails within their little like uh, sand colony thing, just stuff like that, taking care of the babies, all that kind of stuff. Um, so they would do everything. The only thing they wouldn't do would be going on trips to find more black ant larvae or pupae. So that's, that's pretty interesting, right? So, um, this was instead something that the red ants would do exclusively the red ants. So Hubert decides to, you know, do his little experiment. He tested to see if the red ants could live and function without the black ants because it appeared the black ants did everything. So of course he was curious to see like how they would function without their black ants. So what he did was he put 30 red ants in a case with their own larvae. So these were just exclusively their own babies in this larvae. And once they were born, Huber found that once the babies like, you know, were hatched, um, the red ants did nothing. They didn't construct any kind of tunnels for their babies, feed their babies, do anything, even eat. And you see, Huber put honey um, in their case and they didn't try to find it because of course, like, you know, they weren't placed right next to their food when they were placed in this case. Um, and they just, they didn't look for the honey, like at all. So half of them ended up dying because they were literally doing nothing for their own colony. But that's when Huber decides he's going to try putting one black ant in the case. And this single ant performed every task to keep the colony alive. And so basically this kind of proved Huber right that these red ants could do nothing without their slaves. And that this was enslavement, which is really wild to think about, you know. Um, so obviously like this is still an interesting study but the the way that study was used obviously is very immoral and i think everyone would consider you know that wrong today so um basically then going on to like my secondary source which talks about um you know huber's study um so this guy timothy manella i'm gonna refer to him as manella explains in his article that although this was part of what defended the argument, like it was evidence for the argument that enslavement was natural, considering this is coming from a scientific basis, Huber's work was actually not always referred to for this because, I mean, it likens humans to animals. And I mean, you know, who wants to say that humans are the same as animals? I mean, especially at this point in time where many people were very religious and believe that humans are very special and hold this power to capability and human reason and that humans are just very different from animals. They're not animals, they're humans, which I know <laughs> comes off as very hypocritical considering they're enslaving other people. Um, so strange, really, really is peculiar to me how they managed to believe this yet you know believe it's okay to enslave people but i digress um so i mean no one wanted to draw similarities between the human world and the animal world obviously so 
Huber's work was used as evidence only sparingly. It wasn't something they wanted to bring up often, but nonetheless, a significant piece of this argument that, you know, enslavement is natural, which is interesting. So this then raised the question if nature itself was in favorment of enslavement. Now, of course, like I said, it wasn't something that was going to be used often, but this was something that, you know, really like this idea that enslavement is natural based on studies done on ants like this was something that kind of spread across the u.s pretty quickly so at the very least it did initiate a lot of discussion around this like you know it this does raise the question if nature itself is in favorment of enslavement um so I guess I suppose for the non-religious folk this could this could be more interesting for them um you know like I said this does liken humans to animals and um people didn't like the idea of you know being related to animals who were believed to have an uncontrollable like nature to them and you know like humans are more you know this idea of more civilized and you know they don't like the idea of that so of course this wasn't something that was necessarily used but it did cause people to question themselves and Manella himself actually explains this in his article he says that it did actually make philosophers especially question the morality of enslavement and um you know and be like ooh, maybe maybe this is morally Hey, if nature's okay with it, right? So this then became, of course, a topic of discussion, like I just said. Um, and according to Manella, and I quote here, quote, an 1846 article in the Boston Recorder that reviewed Huber's discoveries asked why slaveholders had declined to make more of this enslaved ant science, right? The correspondent declared it has seemed to us, this is in quotes, he says, it has seemed to us a little remarkable that slaveholders and their apologists have never built upon these facts, an argument from analogy. The ant hill, though generally sandy, would be a rather better foundation for a pro-slavery argument than the Bible, end quote. So this is really interesting because this little expert really displays why um, you know, enslaved ants wasn't, for most people, the center point of the pro-slavery argument, especially within, you know, the argument that enslavement is natural. Um, most people did believe in the Bible, and this person literally stated that, like, well, like, this is actually a better argument than the Bible, so I don't see why pro-slavery people are, you know, like, not using this. Um, but that was because of the religion. So I think that quote from a person from the Boston Recorder, even though it's in 1846, you know, it's still relevant. Um, yeah, I just think like that is really interesting and it is really telling why this wasn't bigger. But because of the fact that, um, you know, this was something that was talked about amongst a lot of people, though it was never... Well, not, not never, but it was used infrequently in the pro-slavery argument. Um, because of that, it's still, like, significant to the history regarding this, you know, idea that enslavement is natural, so it's okay. So I felt it was still important to include in my argument. So Manila just kind of explains 
um, his reasoning for the importance of this topic in the same kind of way that I do. He explains it in this act. Ugh, sorry, he explains this topic in his abstract quote. Examining this strange episode enhances the understanding of the place of science in American cultural history by showing how scientific knowledge moved across various venues and discourses. So I guess I am going to end this small segment of this episode with that. Um, so I particularly found this piece of um, you know, history, this piece of my research, very fascinating. Um, overall, I mean, the way it was used, the way this piece of evidence that seemingly would work well for the pro-slavery argument, unfortunately it would, it's just the truth, uh, yet they refuse to use it. And I think that part is also interesting, the science, all of it. Um, of course, you know, uh, the argument that enslavement is natural is it's such an interesting one because we're we're not animals and that is the truth but um the whole thing definitely is certainly interesting and it does get you thinking so anyway i am definitely go listen to my next segment of this episode to learn how aristotle plays a part in this argument that enslavement is natural um, and once again, my bibliography will be in the description of this episode. Um, so if you're looking for that, definitely check it out. Um, and that is all. So have a great rest of your morning, day, night, wherever you are. And hopefully you will be listening to my next episode. Bye. Hello and welcome back to this episode of my podcast. Um, this is the second segment of the Enslavement is Natural episode. Um, so obviously in the last segment, we talked about the natural history of ants by um, Pierre Huber. So now we're going to be talking about Aristotle's point of view, which was a huge part of the Enslavement is Natural argument, right? So we're going to go over Aristotle's book called, just titled simply Politics. Um, I read the uh, one that was translated by C.D.C. Reeve. Um, so we're just going to jump right into it. So in Aristotle's point of view, a slave is a piece of property that can be bought and sold. So of course there is some like you know, room for dispute because in some translations it can come off as servant. And some translations can get, you know, translated as slave. So just to be clear, Aristotle does make it clear in his book that a slave is a piece of property that can be bought and sold. He describes this by actually referring to them as a tool. So they're not being treated as a person, but instead as a thing, an object. The slave is a tool, which is actually... It's kind of a broad term in Aristotle's usage. So he describes them as being a tool with a soul, but he wouldn't necessarily describe them as a living person, which is really interesting. Apparently there is a difference there. So they are a tool of the soul, meaning that they have a certain capacity for thinking things through for tasks. Um, this can be you know, compared to a loom, which was used 
um, in Aristotle society, um, which is a, you know, it's a tool that needs to be operated by a person, but, you know, for the most part kind of does things semi-independently, um, and they can actually run by themselves as long as they're overlooked by a person. So essentially, um, the slave is just another tool, which is really interesting. Um, so Aristotle's key question is that, you know, is anyone a slave by nature? So this is kind of the root of, you know, this topic of talking about, okay, well, is slavery natural? Well, is anyone a slave by nature? Um, so this is important because this implies that if a person is a slave by nature, that that is their own individual task in life and it would be actually bad to free them because they that is naturally what they are intended to do if they are not a slave they have nothing they have no purpose nowhere to go nothing to do like this is their only purpose in life is to be a slave so therefore enslavement gives them direction and enslavement is good for them because that's naturally what they're geared to do they would be lost if they didn't have a master um, so this is just referring to natural enslavement, right? So of course, you know, um, Aristotle actually does bring up that a few people from his time, like he actually lists people in this book from his time who believe that enslavement is 100% not okay. They believe it's not natural and it's not good for people and it is actually against nature. So although it might be believed that in Aristotle's time, you know, everyone wanted slavery. I mean, apparently the majority of people, like living people during that time in, in his area, apparently the majority were actually slaves. Um, so, you know, one might think that everyone would think, oh yeah, slavery is totally fine. That is not true. There were plenty of people who really did not believe it was okay. And there were people who like really did believe that it was against nature. It wasn't going with the flow of nature. It was going against it. Um, so Aristotle, he also explains that people aren't just, they're, they're not entirely wrong when they say enslavement is natural. Now, of course, um, you know, this book written by Aristotle was um, manipulated and kind of cherry-picked for knowledge, if you will, um, by people in early America. So they weren't quite getting the full breadth of what um, Aristotle was saying. It was just kind of applying it to their individual situation and making it more convenient for themselves. And you're, you're gonna see that as I'm talking, you're gonna start understanding what I'm talking about. So anyways, Aristotle explains that people aren't necessarily wrong when they say enslavement is natural. He says that enslavement can be done through law or by nature. So law is generally when a person is taken prisoner and turned into a slave. Um, so Aristotle points out that there are people who are not natural slaves and it is illegitimate and wrong. However, um, you know, this also comes from the idea that, okay, people do deserve to be slaved if they're captured for after doing something bad. So, you know, war and the death that's involved in war is inherently bad. So say the person who started the war gets enslaved, well, that is a lawful enslavement so that is an example of slavery by law and Aristotle does not condone this so the idea is talks about virtuous people and vicious people so this idea comes from that you know a virtuous person should not be enslaved but a vicious person should 
Although, like, this isn't always the case, because this is also coming from the concept that, okay, well, virtuous people only reproduce other virtuous people, um, which he kind of, like, debates amongst himself, um, and, you know, this goes the same for a vicious person, too. Um, so, obviously, like, that is not always the case, um, but is he kind of explains that that's what's most common. Um, so, what is a natural slave to Aristotle is where it is better for them to be enslaved than free, like how I was previously mentioning. For example, by definition, by this definition of natural slavery being, you know, slavery in the sense that these people would literally be lost if they didn't have someone telling them what to do. They just, they don't have, they don't even necessarily, they don't even have real autonomy over their bodies and their own lives because they are not capable of doing that. So, for example, like, you know, children. Children, according to this, are a natural kind of enslavement. However, this is temporary. This is natural until they grow up. So, by the definition of natural enslavement, that is a child, you know, children are not controlling of their own lives. They're not in control of what they want to eat, what they want to do. Their parents are. Their parents are their guardians and help guide them. Now, of course, this does end as the child continues to grow up and slowly kind of, you know, bit by bit, you know, dissipates. So, you know, children just aren't they don't have any control over their own lives. They don't have any freedom. They can't leave, you know. So obviously this is this is natural. This is correct. This is a good thing because if the child was put on their own, they would not survive. And so that same idea is applied to natural slavery. So one can see how easy it could be for, you know, people in early America to read this book by Aristotle and be like, ah, Aristotle says our form of slavery is correct because these people that we're enslaving are, you know, they, they wouldn't be able to do anything without us. They, they wouldn't have religion. They wouldn't have all of this, all of these things. Slavery is good for them and it's natural because it is natural for our children. However, slaves are just permanent children and that's kind of what they're saying. As horrible it is, as it is, like that's kind of how this would be applied. Um, so the idea of natural rights when it comes to um, Aristotle is rather complicated. Um, he doesn't believe in, it appears anyway, that he doesn't really believe in either. Um, he only sometimes believes in natural slavery. It's really only if there is nothing better for the person than to be enslaved, you know, like they would literally be better being enslaved than not enslaved um and of course you know i think i mean ugh, i don't want to get stuck on a tangent here of like oh but like that's so not the case because obviously like that's not the case of course it wasn't so obvious then but to us today in modern day america 2020 we know enslavement is not good and being a child and growing up is so different um so this is just a very interesting take on this idea comparing it to being a child um and this is kind of how it happened um and then like also um part of the rules that you know aristotle explains that it is better for them to be enslaved than free right so um you know if the individual cannot make good decisions regarding themselves and others they are then you know 
natural enslavement is what is right for them. It's what is good for them. Um, the other rule is that this must be advantageous to both parties. Otherwise, it is not a good thing and slavery becomes against nature. So, when enslavement is done by natural means, Aristotle pretty much says that's okay. So, of course, like I said uh, previously, um, people in early America kind of really bent this and twisted it into their own personal view of what Aristotle was kind of trying to say. Um, of course, like the enslavement in America at this time, technically, I mean, it was technically legal slavery, which is illegitimate and wrong according to Aristotle. Um, going by, like, you know, what I just described, like these people were essentially conquered and taken and it was a malicious thing that was done to them. So if Aristotle himself were to see American enslavement, he would not describe it as natural enslavement. Perhaps, maybe, he would describe it as natural enslavement once it happened and then those people who became slaves by law ended up having children and more children and more children and now that's the um that slave say in the 1800s now that's his only purpose he doesn't know a life outside of that therefore now enslavement is right for them so in a sense it is partially cherry picking evidence but it, it's a very interesting thing because the origin of it is not okay according to aristotle but later on as it has you know the original slaves that were taken from africa um you know had children then it became natural slavery in a sense so this is kind of how it was uh, rationalized in these people's minds um so of course you know this was part of this argument that enslavement is natural um so of course i think the evidence was definitely bent and twisted but this is something that was used a lot for the argument that enslavement is a natural thing that shouldn't be interfered with um so that pretty much wraps up what i have to say about aristotle and that wraps up this segment um so thank you so much for listening to my podcast i hope you have enjoyed it and i hope you have a great wonderful rest of your day night or morning wherever you are and hopefully you will be listening to my next podcast so please stick around and i'd love to have you okay bye <laughs>